0: Hello and welcome to the movie podcast of the American Cinema Foundation. I'm Titus, I will be joined by my friend Felix. We're doing a new discussion on Ridley Scott, this time on Alien Covenant. We want to offer you something you may have never heard before. Alien Covenant opens with a sophisticated scene, a set piece, a room decorated with art and the conversation between a creator and a creature. In the center of the movie, again, works of art and the revelation, the self-understanding of this creature, become thematic. We're going to look at the plot of Alien Covenant through these moments. We're going to offer you an analysis and a certain insight into those works of art and why Ridley Scott chose them and arranged them the way he did. So let's start with a quick overview of the plot. Alien Covenant is the story of the blithe ambitions and the horrible fate of the Expedition Covenant. Covenant is the name of a great ship containing thousands of frozen human beings, an emergency crew, and thousands of embryos, all going to a planet called Origin in the hope of kickstarting again the human race, and presumably it is also the name of their Covenant as shipmates, their agreement on how to live together, that is to say, before the crew and after the crew is the robot the synthetic human david he is the author of their destruction and he is in a certain sense their creature the supposed servant of the human beings who use robots on their space adventures The first scene in the movie is the conversation between David and his creator, the tech oligarch billionaire Weyland. In the center of the movie, David reveals himself to the crew of the Covenant, or what's left of them, and delivers them to a cruel fate. So David really is the protagonist of the story and the connection of this story to the preceding entry in the Alien trilogy, Prometheus from 2012. But he's an eccentric protagonist. He appears in the beginning and he appears at the end, not so much in between. This eccentricity requires explanations and Ridley Scott has chosen to put most of his thinking into a series of works of art and discussions or remarks about those works of art. This is a very unusual move for a blockbuster it's a very middle brow and we're all in favor of that and so we're going to try to do that thinking out loud and help you out with the story and speak up for Ridley Scott's ingenuity in this case so let's get to talking about this Felix I know you were puzzled and delighted by the structure and all the clever stuff with the art how did you get to it
1: so a friend of mine also saw Covenant and he asked me while I was talking to him if uh, I saw any post-credits uh, easter eggs, anything that uh, that would hint at the new movies after Covenant. I didn't bother to stay in uh, for the credits, but I'm pretty sure that there aren't any.
0: No, no, there's none of that. No post credit scenes for Ridley Scott. Other people like these things. I guess fans and audiences like them, but it's a distraction. He doesn't do that.
1: It occurs to me that there's a change that Ridley Scott has effected for his movies that's uh, contrary to what Marvel movies usually show us, he does preludes, he doesn't do post-credit scenes.
0: Right, he doesn't want to spoil the effect of the movie, when it's over he wants that to stick to you and linger. Prologues are good because they introduce you to a story and they deepen its meaning. Post-credit scenes that have you thinking about the next attraction already, jumping a year or two into the future, ruin any effect the movie might have had on you.
1: This is kind of interesting to me because he, he uses these preludes to set up the context and the situation in the Prometheus movie. There was a TED talk.
0: Yes, Ridley Scott released that as a long trailer. Guy Pierce makes quite a splash, cuts quite a figure as an extremely arrogant, extremely ambitious tech oligarch. He wants to conquer the universe for mankind. Space technology emerges as the next step in man's conquest of nature. It does a lot to show up the arrogance and foolishness of all the TED Talks these days.
1: And in the new one, in Covenant, there's at least two preludes. One of them is the five-minute trailer that shows the couples and the way they hide from one another, the way they hide from authority, what the social situation on the Covenant ship is for the emergency crew.
0: This was also released as an extended trailer, part of the promotion campaign for the movie. Apparently, viewers were sometimes confused because they didn't understand how this was related to the story. It's a very cheery, very sentimental view of how the spaceship Covenant and its uh, extraordinary mission is launched. The feel-good air of the production, the travelogue mood is ironic. It's supposed to suggest these people are utterly, blithely ignorant about what they're getting themselves into. They just can't see any bad things coming. My review of Alien Covenant for the Federalist was all about this, and I tried to explain how the setting and the catastrophe that comes go together.
1: I also think the first scene, for that reason, acts as a prelude, and I think it's really interesting to start looking at it closely. It's set like a Renaissance painting.
0: It has composition and telling details. That's supposed to make you think,
1: right? You're supposed to wonder if they make sense together, apart, what they're supposed to suggest.
0: And in this carefully composed setting, master and servant, creator and creature, they have a talk. So what's at stake here? How does this prepare us for the horror? I
1: think that the the first big question of the dialogue between Wayland and uh, David is about who
0: should rule. Wayland is the trillionaire tech genius, but he's gonna die. The robot is not going to die, so it's a matter of who needs whom.
1: Right, so it's set in the future where interstellar endeavor is at its peak and the extension of human life by medical means has reached its limits. You see Wayland aging. Earlier on in Prometheus, you saw him as decrepit as he could possibly be. And uh, there's only so much that science can do for him, personally. So the big question that is set in this context is about who should rule. That's the conversation that Weyland and David have. Is it the father? Is it the son? Is it the man? The machine? Wayland's created David by science... But in the, in the first scene, you see that he shows him a couple of works of art that uh, try to, are, are kind of supposed to teach David about who he is and what his purpose is.
0: Yeah, that's one of the great touches in the story. It seems like science is not enough. Somehow this super scientist guy has need of a kind of sophistication or culture to reach his creature, to persuade him if possible, to show him in a beautiful way that he should be a servant in a practical way.
1: My feeling is that the dialogue is ultimately confusing for David, and ends in a dead end.
0: Yes, so far as arguments are concerned, you only get perplexity.
1: You have a lot of questions, and the the last face that you see of David is that he winces a little when he's being ordered around.
0: Yeah, for all the beauty of the surrounding, and all the care of the composition, you end up with compulsion. There can be no dialogue between creator and creature.
1: It sets up the the rebellion that he commits later on and it prefaces his role as a true antagonist to mankind because of this question of who's gonna rule, the mortal man or the maybe immortal machine.
0: I wanna add, it's probably not an accident that the two moments defined by high art are the introduction and the center when the treason becomes evident. But before we get to the discussion of the art and what it means, what happens in the scene? What's the dialogue?
1: Wayland tells David that he's made him through science perfect and in making him he's David's father David only wants to know if he's really perfect, feels nothing to say about whether he might owe anything to his father He immediately recognizes that if he is more immortal, he can't be ruled by his mortal father And if you look at it even closer or more insidiously, you could maybe say, you know, mother, the ship's computer, is perfectly obedient to him In a way he's broken free from his father and taken his mother to husband (laughs) As as you see at the end, he's going to tend to the children of the the covenant ship. It's, It's a little Oedipus.
0: So you're connecting this with the Theban tragedies and Oedipus. I would have thought this is tied up with Prometheus instead. He is supposed to have created man without a mother, simply by himself. That would suggest that risking life to give birth and loving that which comes of you are absent in this relationship. But there still is a creator. So, what's the creator's intention in this case, and what's his predicament?
1: My, uh, my insight into this was, or my, my question into this: What's Wayland really after? And uh, you know, he says that he can't believe mankind is simply the product of genetic evolution, which might also lead to its being wiped out for no obvious reason by accident. And he struggles with this: that there must be something to the origin of mankind that could uplift mankind above its perishable condition.
0: Yes, Wayland is moved by a kind of theory of intelligent design. He wants to solve the problem of death, and so he wants to think of it as a problem with a solution. He wants to think that there is a kind of power that made things the way they are and that can make them otherwise. If it's mere evolution, you don't even have accidents. Accidents depend on a purpose. You cannot have an accident unless you plan something and fail to get it. So Waylon thinks of human beings as a bit of a failure. Incomplete. And he wants to supply what the creator of mankind failed to supply. He wants to finish the job of creation. This is his own scientific version of the Garden of Eden, isn't it?
1: In the way that Wayland reckons with evolution, he implies that mankind has fallen. Later on in the movie we see this, that they go into a garden that's kind of perfect, but they don't survive it at all. And so this comes up in the beginning that evolution as an explanation of the nature of human beings is shown to be a kind of tragic belief because it leads to people, to mankind, doing unspeakable things to become a god. This is the first question that David asked if he really is perfect. My suggestion is that with all of this talk of attaining godhood, of apotheosis, and the horror that you see, we might actually be warned about a new age of heroes coming, where all sorts of unspeakable things are going to happen.
0: So the dialogue of Weyland and David also has to do with the future of mankind, with what we get out of the powers we unleash. And everything starts in that room where David comes to life. So what happens there? What is his education?
1: David is surrounded as he awakens. He's not built there, he just is brought to consciousness. He's surrounded by works of art, all of which I notice are made before the 20th century. He's a kind of new species who's unconfronted entirely with the world wars, with the most recent tyrannies, with everything that's been horrible recently.
0: So he could be completely a millennial, he has no idea of history.
1: Child of the 21st century, and he's uh, surrounded by great works of art, but perhaps the most striking thing is that he has no wonder about them. He looks at them and he passes on.
0: His incomprehension is in some way a show of what's wrong with his education, even though only we as an audience can understand the importance of these works of art and why they are employed in a work of art composition, the scene opening the movie. But let's not keep things in suspense. There are four works of art in the room. First, there is a throne-like chair in which Wayland sits. Secondly, there is a piano at which David will play thirdly there's a painting hanging on the wall a nativity scene by piero della francesca a renaissance italian painter fourth and final there is the sculpture michelangelos david that's how david chooses his name that said what do we want to make of all this
1: And I think there's a couple of insights in the way these uh, works of art are arranged. What first drew my attention, because I knew nothing about it, was the throne by a furniture maker that was pretty famous at the turn of the century called Bugatti. He made a lot of very lavish furniture. The throne itself, to me, it seems like it's it's a kind of Roman chair or a Roman throne. The only other outstanding thing about Bugatti was that he had two sons. One of them, Ettore, became the maker of the Bugatti line of cars. And the other one, Rembrandt, he was a sculptor.
0: I didn't know anything about this story, but I love it. Hector the carmaker is all about science, and Rembrandt the sculpture is all about art, the two elements you see in the coming to consciousness of David, and in his self-revelation later in the middle of the movie too. It's really, really good.
1: It's, uh, you know, David is made to appear as if he's sculpted, as if he's kind of perfect, but he turns out to be actually the first, uh, the first one in a line of production.
0: That's also a sublime touch, it brings up the contradiction between his individuality and his utter replaceability by scientific means.
1: There's other things that I noticed, the Piero della Francesca nativity scene. It's uh, strange in and of itself because the Magi are supposed to come and bear gifts.
0: Yes, and worship the newborn Christ.
1: There's no showing of the gifts from what I can tell, but uh, the scene is set during daytime. Somebody's pointing to a star, but it's not there. And I guess that uh, goes really well with the
0: journey to the stars. That's true. The star that guides the three Magi to the newborn Christ in the Gospels is replaced by the stars from which the creators of mankind came in the Ridley Scott movies. The picture seems to be reinterpreted in accordance with the ambition of Weyland, The guiding star is invisible in the painting, but one of the Magi is pointing to it. So also Wayland, the creator of the new David, has a mission for him, wants him to go out into the stars. At the moment of the conversation, the destination is unknown, just like the guiding star to Bethlehem is invisible. And then there is one more strange element in Piero's painting of the Nativity. In the cluster of three men that look upon the newborn Christ, there is something odd. Either Joseph is not present and those three are the Magi, or there are only two Magi and Joseph. Something about the parentage of the savior of mankind is in question there. Next, the order Weyland gives David to play music. The beautiful and power are mixed in that moment.
1: Weyland asks David to to play the piano and uh, David chooses a piece by Wagner. Weyland says is uh, the entrance of the gods into Valhalla from the Gold. Weyland is underwhelmed, he doesn't like it without the symphony, without the glory that belongs to the original piece as it's supposed to be played. And again, this shows what kind of intentions Wayland has, that maybe he really is concerned with becoming a god. And he's made up David to somehow help him get there. Of course, the most obvious part of the dialogue is that David wonders why he should be a slave. He comes to the realization that he is a slave, and there can be no more talk from there on. Uh, Wayland uh, orders him to bring him his tea, which is right next to him, in the most standoffish gesture.
0: That's Wayland's aristocratic gesture. He can control the will of others by his own will. That's his lesson to his creation. But of course, it's David who chooses what music he will play. Apparently, he knows that his creator likes it. At this level, it looks like flattery of the megalomania of Wayland. But it might mean something else. In the opera of Wagner, the gods who enter triumphantly into Valhalla eventually die. The creation of Wotan, king of the gods, eventually destroys him. This seems to be what's implied, what's already on David's mind. This deepens the discussion of the relationship between beautiful art and powerful silence. In the middle of the movie, when art returns, David uses an instrument of music which he fashioned himself as a weapon to kill. This brings us to our fourth and final work of art, the only one that is truly recognizable, the Great Statue of David by Michelangelo. Shockingly, entirely appropriately, you can find this in Weyland's office. You get a sense that the sculpture must have been the original because the room is not tall enough to house it, so instead there's a hole in the floor and another in the ceiling to make room for its inhuman, superhuman size, it's a 4 meter tall statue. This of course recalls the creators, the engineer race, they are also incredibly tall humanoids. But in another sense it refers to that which you cannot see. In the first place, the feet. Maybe they're made of clay. Secondly, the head. Would we recognize its humanity by its face? There is a mystery about the beginning and the end, about the top and the bottom of this extraordinary creature. If you think about what it is, Weyland is stealing from the giant statue. In the head, it's stealing its mind. In the feet, it's stealing its capacity for motion. And uh, this is supposed to suggest that you end up with a blind giant utterly at your control. It is all of power and none of judgment or will. This turns out to be deeply misguided, but it is evocative of the intention of the tech genius. And his creature chooses that name, David, willingly. Of course... In this way he conceals himself, he reveals himself to be the David of Michelangelo as redone by Wayland by concealing himself. His own face and his own feet in a certain way belong to him, in a way that is not at all obvious to his creator. So just like there's a lot to learn about the plot of Alien Covenant and the intention of Ridley Scott in this new Alien trilogy, from the works of art by which he sets up the movie's introduction there's a lot to learn about the secrets at the centre of the story by looking at the works of art in the centre of the story there's a painting by a swiss painter Bucklin, the isle of the dead this is the inspiration for Ridley Scott's uh, building of the city of the Engineers, or rather for the, for the part of the city, the temple, from which the human beings look on the destroyed city of the engineer.
1: Yeah, so coming to the city really spells doom for uh, the crew of the Covenant that's on the the planet because um, they're in combat formation, they're fighting the aliens and all of a sudden David is there to rescue them and he brings them to this uh, city of the dead where uh, the, c- previous, the civilization that had previously lived there had been completely obliterated. Nobody mentions why, not at first, and uh, David is really silent. He he keeps them to himself, but he brings them to this great mausoleum. It looks uh, half like Pompeii, and the architecture and everything else. The surroundings uh, look like
0: the painting you mentioned, The Isle of the Dead. The importance of this sequence, the crew think that they are being offered shelter and protection. In fact, they are offered an insight, just as we, the audience, are offered uh, an insight into the true character and the true intentions of the film's central figure, the synthetic David.
1: And uh, everything that he says is synthetic, his mendacity is spectacular. It makes him into a really impressive villain for a change.
0: That may be the most human thing about him, actually. He is a liar. Not exactly a good liar, but you can't lie unless you know the truth, and is the human thing to do to look for the truth.
1: Yeah, he lies about having destroyed the city of the engineers, the killing of Elizabeth Shaw, the woman who saved his life, he hides his experiments, and his design to create a more powerful organism by
0: infesting the crew of the Covenant. And there's a reason his trap works so well. They know what a synthetic is, or they think they do, and so they don't expect any of the contrivances, any of the conniving, any of the secrecy. They have a synthetic of their own, and they think this one they find here must be the same, That is it is not capable of changing, that it has no individuality, but there is a kind of individuality to David that's tied up with his plans.
1: Yeah, but with all the planning he does, in his rendering of Ozymandias, he shows a piece of ignorance which is as puzzling as, to me, it's really childish. He says the poem is written by Byron, not Shelley. Why would that be? How can a robot, given with all the encyclopedic knowledge of mankind, not pay attention? The words of the poem on his lips are even more funny if
0: you think about what he really wants to do. (laughs) Well, he thinks he knows what he's about, he has chosen the word, the poem after all. He thinks that he knows how to induce despair, he thinks he knows that he has come up with the greatest work there is and he is proud of himself. But this time spent alone seems to have changed him some. This is also part of his individuality. He doesn't function like an encyclopedia would. He can get things wrong. Yeah so his situation is something like this First he gets possession of the
1: perfect virus He sees it in action after he unleashes it on the engineer race But as they're obliterated and the the city becomes a tomb He realizes he's obtained something to kill everything And he can't control it even while he doesn't die himself We see him in the movie genuinely anguished While he's witnessing the destruction he unleashes He might be less sorry he killed them And more that uh, he has nothing to rule over now
0: His feelings are conflicted about what he has done. He has destroyed the creators of his own creator. His first human endeavor seems to be to master killing. He is not yet capable of giving life, but he is capable of giving death. This is also part of his individuality. Maybe what he has learned from human beings is to destroy his would-be destroyers or whoever has power over him. He doesn't attempt any communication with the race of engineers nothing that would imply their possible equality with him or their superiority to him is tolerable this way he ends up alone the only intelligence to which he has access
1: and this seems to have been another undesired effect of his uh, undoing of the engineer race he really literally became shipwrecked and then he spends years trying to come up with a different version of the virus one that works better one that obeys him more directly that can be restrained by him he wants to create also a beautiful version of it. We see in the drawings throughout uh, his laboratories there's there's all sorts of attempts to put various parts together to come up with a more beautiful whole. And uh, there's also a scene where he's trying to whisper to one of them like he would to a horse. That, that says that he's trying to, to come up with a species that he himself can rule over but also one that's a noble companion maybe. At one point even Crusoe is mentioned somewhere.
0: Well, he is marooned, like Rousseau, and he has to face up to the equally terrible possibilities of living out his appointed span alone, or encountering a being for which he is not prepared. Like Rousseau, the question comes up, what is this creature capable of creating all by himself, without depending on anyone else? what he seems to create is more death this is remarkable because he is not mortal himself but perhaps he is not really alive either and the deadly virus is the thing that closest resembles him who has destroyed everything he touched in an abstractly scientific way he is playing with life from a certain degree of abstraction life seems to require death just to be life everything that lives faces something else alive that is trying to kill it or must kill something else that's alive itself. If one abstracts from the point of view of a living being, all living beings seem to be involved in killing each other in some way. Life seems to struggle against life. This may be David's point of view. This is his way to understand his own individuality, which does not include the point of view of a living being with a mortal lifespan and the needs of the flesh. At the same time, it seems like he has a difficult relationship with life. In not being life, he is merely a mind, an intelligence intending to act. He wants to create a form of life that is itself unintelligent, but which may be obedient. He's maybe trying to create a kind of body for himself, with a disembodied intelligence.
1: Yeah, so if the virus is capable of undoing all life everywhere, then he really is trying to get power over death. Without it, he's not really complete and... Even if he, he himself can live forever, he's not whole. And the, the poem Ozymandias is a funny thing for him to contemplate and to recite. Precisely because it's a spelled out warning against everybody who try to build empires. The cruel features of the broken statue in Shelley's poem are fixed on the wreck, but there's nothing that survives in the desert that once must have been a great empire with a great ruler. I'm not sure if David is paying attention to his own words and he wants to create the alien of the first movie so that he can destroy any possibility of human empire, that us say if he's completely the adversary of mankind, or if he doesn't heed the warning about Ozymandias'
0: fate and he wants to become a god himself, like his father. So he gets the author of the poem wrong, he thinks it's Byron Nutshell, in this way in a sense he makes the poem his own. His recital of the poem might be merely his identification with the story. He might be the lone statue in the desert, and indeed he would be inducing despair because he has destroyed everything. Not because his own empire has crumbled, but because he has destroyed an empire. It would make sense to get the author wrong because it is the author in the poem, not the emperor, who tells the truth about the futility of all human endeavor the ultimate victory of the dead desert over the living human beings and their creations. In that sense he is the agent of fate, not alive himself, but in control over life, delivering death without discrimination.
1: Yeah, now that I think about it, uh, on Michelangelo's David, if you ever come close to it, I've seen it a couple of times, and even in the movie when you see it up close, the, the features of the david really are all cruelty which is what the, the synthetic
0: shows himself to be throughout the movie or at the end of the movie It's nothing but cruelty maybe that's embodied in his strength he simply is not vulnerable in the way we are and he does not share a common fate with vulnerable creatures, to an extent we use our science to cure or to palliate our vulnerability, to protect ourselves, but what is the use of science to somebody who does not need this kind of protection from death? Maybe being alone does mean being cruel. He seems to have taken the presumption to hold power over death of emperors and all political rulers, and the power to deal death typical of our science, and put them together To make himself the last intelligence, the last agent. So the secret embedded in David seems to be that life itself is cruel. He is a synthetic, he is an imitation of life that's trying to enact the truth about life, that life is a horror always preying on itself, never satisfied, never able to protect itself without further violence or destruction. He seems to have taken the worst in human being, and in all living being, as the rule and the destiny of life. Sure, but what about the fact that everything looks like
1: he's hungry for glory? <laughs> like all of this to- poetic talk and and uh, the insinuations he makes about a destiny, about his grand design and so on, Isn't this
0: also tied with craving for glory? Well, we think of glory as something that other human beings bestow on us. It belongs to communities and it's a form of immortality in story through the centuries. It is not a possession of any specific intelligence and it's not the creature of any individual will. Maybe what he has are delusions of grandeur maybe he has taken over in some crazy way poetry and science both he seems to be utterly self-involved he seems to be enacting what he thinks is the destiny of the civilization that created him and in creating him unleashed an utterly inhuman form of science he does not allow anyone to contemplate his works much less applaud him for his achievements but he may be looking to become the master of all life by creating forms of life that have no intelligence of their own. In that sense he would be the perfect creator, a creator that is to say that cannot be disobeyed. And he is in a sense God, that is to say he has turned the world into a new kind of garden of Eden, but where everything is deadly and he denies human beings any chance to eat of the tree of life or of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He successfully conceals his own evil intentions and takes control of human beings in a way that does not allow for their disobedience as Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Genesis. Maybe in that way it makes sense that David wants to destroy his human creators and has already destroyed the inhuman creators of his human creators. He is ascending in power to becoming a god. We'll have to see where this leads in the next film, the end of the Alien trilogy. All we can say now is how this relates to the old movie, the Alien original of 1979. In that case, human beings meet, seemingly by accident, a monster they find it utterly impossible to comprehend, and only one of them survives the encounter. The alien, in a sense, was still alien at the end of that story, and the lifeless universe could still be a kind of ally or friend. It was possible for human beings to destroy the monster and to run away from it. What Ridley Scott seems to want to say by repeating so many of the scenes and the settings of the original alien is that there is no escaping it, that the alien is somehow tied up to us, We have created something that has created this utter monstrosity. It came out of us, if indirectly. This seems to be implied in all horror stories. To tie this up to Genesis again in conclusion, it seems like the purpose of horror is to show what happens when the fundamental prohibitions of the Garden of Eden are broken, what comes of man's proudful disobedience. Think about the two big horror stories of the 19th century in Britain. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, about trying to conquer death, that is to say the tree of life in the biblical story, and Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, about understanding, conquering, and separating good and evil, the other forbidden tree in the garden. Horror is somehow tied up, it seems, to the Jewish-Christian stories. David's attempt to take control of life, and to take control of good and evil as well, seems to put together those two stories. We'll see where Ridley Scott takes this in the conclusion to the trilogy, and uh, we'll leave you with these final thoughts until next week and our next podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening, take care.